Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. Now in this episode I wanted to talk about behavioural economics. Unfortunately I don't know anything about behavioural economics so it was going to be a very short one. However, I found somebody who does. Josh, thank you for coming on. You're more than welcome. It's so, nice to be back, yeah. You, you, you have some passing understanding of the subject, do you? Uh, yeah, I mean passing, something like that. Right. Yeah, I did do a master's degree dissertation in behavioural ah, economics. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, and I would say it's probably my specialist field within psychology. So Superb. That, I, I feel like that's just about passing, maybe. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I, think, yeah. I, think, that would, I think that would do us nicely. So, so perfect. So, I mean, behavioural economics is one of those things where I, I, I think I, I must have internalised some of the lessons from it because in doing the research for this, I started realising, oh, yeah, that and that and that crops up from all over the place, but never looked at it as a sort of coherent thing. So, I mean, the first thing I'm going to say is, is where where does it actually come from? This, I mean, what's what's the what's the history of this subject? Mm -hmm. Well, of of course, you've got um, a psychological perspective on economics throughout all of human history. As long as people have thought about economics, mm. obviously, economics is dealing with the actions of human beings, and so people have thought about the impact of human psychology on economics for some time, but it's not necessarily been formalised. And right. the, the process of formalising it as an academic discipline um, was quite a long one, really, in that sort of in the early 20th century, economists, as you may well know, um, they sort of scorned the notion of approaching economics as if there was um, a psychological dimension to it. They liked to go through a sort of pure mathematics route and although that made it mm. quite empirical and objective in a sense it also had a model of human behavior um, within it that wasn't really exposed to a lot of the insights that we got throughout the 20th and 21st century um, in terms of human psychology they had a model a sort of classic economic model of um, human action that suggests that human beings are perfectly rational economic actors and we always um, operate in our self-interest, in our best interests. And actually things started to emerge in the, the latter half of the 20th century which counteracted that. And um, it's worth mentioning as well that the psychology of the early 20th century was sort of psychoanalysis, so your Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung's yeah. and your behaviourists who are, you know, like Skinner um, also, or Pavlov, where they're looking at um, associative learning. So mm. you can see why they didn't see um, much relevance to economics at the time. But okay. by the time the sort of 60s comes along um, and you have the cognitive revolution, which is a sort of reconceptualization of how to approach the human brain in that it's treated like an information processor. And you actually start, it's amusing, as you start seeing more and more computation, you actually see more and more computational language to describe the human brain, like the, the term processing power or, or RAM is just as easy to use as an analogy for the human brain as it is for, you know, an accurate term to describe different components of a computer. And in many ways, the, the two, uh, the terms we use seem to have a, a surprising amount of cross-pollination. But... Yeah, that makes sense. So hang on, are you, wait. So are you saying that behavioural economics, did it, did it emerge from the field of economics or from the field of psychology? 
Well, it was it was more or less psychologists who then went to economics. So lots right. of the um, academics involved may have you know formally studied, did their PhD in psychology, but they would have also studied maths alongside it. And actually, um, in this day and age, most psychologists, at least if you're like me and you've got a research background, you've got to be incredibly um, mathematically literate, I suppose, because the amount of statistical testing that you have right, to do okay. is really quite extensive. And um, because you've got the problems um, of the sort of early 2000s to sort of 2010s of the replicability crisis in um, the human sciences, so um, uh, your sort of sociologies, your psychologies, those sorts of disciplines. And there was an interesting thing that um, when they tried to quantify the problem, actually the ones that were more um, sort of empirically based and less social, if you will. The more you get into the social side of things, the more there are research problems. But actually a lot of the cognitive psychology and things like neuroscience and that end of it, the more scientific, more modern end, if you will, fared a lot better for replicability than lots of others. And so a lot of these studies that have come out of, say, the 70s, the 60s, some even the late 50s, have actually fared quite well and some of them have aged very well, and, and we'll be touching on some of them mm. later. So but economics, of course, is well, economics has a much longer history going back to I know Adam Smith, classically mm -hmm. the you know the nineteenth century author. But even Adam Smith, he um, discussed loss aversion, which is something we're going to discuss later. Right. So in his day, there wasn't this taboo at looking at human psychology mm -hmm. and its impact on economics. Certainly not to the degree that there was in the earlier earlier part of the twentieth century. And so he was actually happy to discuss the psychological effects and... Okay. And so it, so it, it started, of course, the field of economics would have started off with more maverick thinkers like Adam Smith. Mm -hmm. Then it started to become more regularised and more sort of bolted down. And I mean, certainly the fact that when I was doing my economics degree, I, I found that you had these economists who kind of had this physicist envy well, they yeah, wanted well, to be able to turn everything into equations. I think there's a, a similar thing in sort of political science, as, and there was at one point a similar thing in psychology of a preoccupation with weeding out some of the um, sort of practices that undermined our, our disciplines because we wanted to be recognised on par with the natural sciences. Mm. And... With psychology, that certainly happened with things like neuroscience. No one says, oh, neuroscience, they're all a bunch of um, quacks, aren't they? You know, they don't mm. know what they're talking about because neuroimaging is pretty difficult to get um, completely wrong. You know, you, you have an image of the brain, you see the parts of the brain it, it light up. It looks scientific anyway, yes. Yeah, and, and so that aspect makes sense and lends right. some credibility to the, the world of psychology. And I think that um, now economists have sort of benefited from embracing behavioural economics, they can say, oh, well, we've got this sort of empirically tested, um, we've got these empirically tested insights into human behaviour from psychology, and now we can apply these um, to our understanding of the economy and economics, and actually you find that they have a lot more explanatory power than the um, kinds of theories that you had um, pre-World War II. Mm. So, I mean, but, but in, the, in a nutshell, Economics was established by 
the turn of the 20th century. Yes. Early 20th century, the field of psychology really starts to get going. Yes, it's quite a young science, yeah. um, depending on which part of psychology. And Some of it the, isn't scientific. And then but. by the 60s, 70s, these two fields have started to merge. Well, it wasn't until the 1990s, really, that you start okay. seeing economists actually embrace behavioural economics. So they'd sort of developed in isolation for a while. Um, right. And then there was a realisation, sort of, that there was a sort of trickle. Um, but it's, for example, one of the key um, behavioural economists only won the Nobel Prize um, for economics in 2002 for research he did in the 70s and 80s. Right. So that, that sort of speaks of the sort of lag between the two disciplines, if you will. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there was always a, a, a bit of a lag with the Nobel Prize, well, the, the sensible Nobel Prizes, not the, not sure. the Peace Prizes and mm -hmm. stuff. But, but yeah, that is still quite a long lag. Yeah, but even, it's but, that yeah. sort of um, distance between the, the two disciplines of um, behavioural economics was a little bit of ahead of the, the game mm. compared to economics, but now it's been embraced by economics and now there isn't really this distinction between. It's just a nice, neat overlap between economists and then you've sort of got behavioural economists in the middle and then psychologists. And there's not really, okay. there's a sort of contribution and collaboration between So I think I, start, I think I started my degree in 1999. So mm -hmm. that would explain why if it was only really coming into its own in the, in the 1990s is why yeah. it didn't feature. But presumably if I were to do an economics degree these days, it probably would just be bundled in with it. I it? would be very surprised if they skirted over it because it, it right. fundamentally changes your um, view of economics, in my opinion. Mm. I actually found it complemented um, Austrian economics very well, which is also okay. interesting because uh, that often gets sidelined as well. Um, oh, most definitely. Mm -hmm. I, me I remember a lecturer spending an entire lecture basically just wistfully eyed describing how it was possible to go to the British Museum and sit in the very same chair that Karl Marx used to sit in. He hijacked an entire <laughs> lecture just to talk about sitting in the same seat as Karl Marx. So, yeah, not a lot of Austrian economics was done, to say the least. So, um, classical economics, which is probably, you know, the, the man on the street level understanding of economics, probably mm -hmm. the, your A-level type economics, is, is essentially the sort of classical theories. And that's got a couple of key underpinnings. Yes. And... Well, I mean, let, let's just talk about those because it, it feels like behavioural economics sort of gives a shunt to all of them. Well, yes, because they're wrong. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so pick, pick, pick the first one of uh, one of the key tenets of, of um, classical economics: um, self-interest, for example. Mm -hmm. So, uh, actions are driven purely by self-interest. Well, that's not entirely true, and in fact, there are experiments that are done whereby um, if you are cooperating or you're even um, antagonistic in, in games of risk and reward, um, where money, real world money as well, because all of these experiments, they, they understand that if the money is fake, people don't care. If you're playing for real money, all of a sudden it changes the nature of the experiment. But people don't always try and, and screw over the person that they're either competing with or com um, competing alongside. They actually are far more collaborative and, dare I say, altruistic, although um, there, there's certainly indication in the psychological literature that altruism is just an extension of self-interest. But that's right. um, 
So the it's the experiment the I'm, the experiment I'm thinking of here is that is that game where basically you've got two people mm -hmm. and you say you're going to split hundred pounds. Yes. And the first person gets to decide the split, so they can decide how much they're going to keep and how much the other person is going to receive. Mm -hmm. So they decide the split. The second person can accept or reject the deal in its entirety. So if they reject the deal, nobody gets any money. Now, classical economics would tell you that the first person could do the split, which is £99 for me, £1 for you. And if, if, if we're operating on classical economics, you would say, I'm up a pound, and therefore you'd always accept the deal. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think that's how the experiment actually goes down. Well, of course, the human mind mediates potential gains and losses based on the social fairness of them. Like you hear people talking about inequality quite a lot in, mm. in politics, don't you? It, even though, you know, the argument is posed to them that you're materially better off, they don't process it in that way. And they're not necessarily wrong either that, you know, there is potentially some, some loss there. But you can even run that experiment and not give the other person the option to accept or reject it. And people will still choose something other than 99 to me and 1 to you as a split. Right. So that, that suggests that there's, there's something deeper there. And to my understanding, yes. human beings are, are sociable animals. We depended on, on groups of human beings um, working together to survive. And so if we mm. were purely self-interested, um, we would be exiled from the group. And yes. that would actually affect our um, ability to survive. Um, far more detrimentally than that, that short-term benefit. Okay. And so actually being somewhat pro-social is the most self-interested Yeah, and, and sort of 99% of people are pro-social mm -hmm. and the other 1% are top 10 Reddit contributors. <laughs> that, that sort of dialogue. Right. Well, um, pro-social in the sense of um, not necessarily that you, you like going outside and talking to people and you don't live in your, your mum's yes. basement, but more that you are going out of your way to benefit the people around you, be it um, in terms of resources or, you know, you're, you're giving them the, the social capital that will allow them to pursue. Or put, putting the trolley back after. That too. That's yes. a good example. Okay. Yes. Um, the next one is, is an, another tenet of classical economics would be um, complete information. Mm -hmm. um, that basically you, you have access to your know, decision. Whenever the classical economic models are done, it's, you know, this is, this, these are all the factors that can be considered and therefore they are considered. Everything is priced in. Mm -hmm. But again, that's just not the case. Yeah, allow me to sort of pose a, a scenario to you. Um, imagine you're, you're, I don't know, shopping for some shoes or something. Mm. It's just been Christmas, that's on my mind. And you go to a shop and you have a look at a pair of shoes that you kind of like and you're considering buying them, do you then look at every other pair of shoes available to you in your size um, individually, or do you think, these are the kind of shoes that I like, um, they, they meet a certain criteria um, that um, I've been looking for, I don't necessarily need to look at every shoe that's ever been made to see if I'm getting the best deal, or you know, there's one out there that I like. You you don't necessarily look to maximise your utility, um, yes. because the resources used to expend um, all that effort would far outweigh the benefit of the utility maximisation. So I'll give you an even better example of that. I was recently trying to buy a retractable dog lead on Amazon. <laughs> right. 
Now, the ones, yeah. how much time do I really want to spend on that? I mean, I need a bloody lead, dog wants a walk, um, go on Amazon. So I'm, I'm prepared to spend maybe three or four minutes on this task. And then I call up the list and there's hundreds of them. Right? And there's the absolute cheapest one, which is like, I don't know, like seven pounds or something. And I, what, what I end up doing, and loads of people must do this, is, is I'm, not going to go in, I'm not even going to go and read the top ten. I'm just going to look at the prices. Okay, the cheapest one is seven pounds. The most expensive one is like sixty pounds. Um, well, why don't I just go a little bit up from the, you know, uh, let's look for something that's like seventeen quid or something. And I'll just go mm -hmm. there. And I'm, and I'm, and and this, I mean, that's a really bad way of making a decision. But I kind of found myself defaulting to it anyway because well, I was trying to use price as a proxy for information. It's it's bad based on some criteria, sure, but. At the same time, if you were to follow the model provided by classical economics, well, you would be there looking at every single dog lead, an analysing the ins and outs until you knew every dog lead off by heart. Yes. And then you choose the one that, based on this very clearly defined criteria in your head, meets all of those criteria and yes. therefore is the optimal decision for you. Mm. But of course, you would have you would have expended you know maybe multiple days choosing this dog lead, which isn't yes. that important to you. I might do that for a car. Mm -hmm. But the, the point being yeah. here is that classical economics assumed that in isolation, with their mathematical models, mm. that people behaved perfectly rationally based on these, that they would go out of their way to optimise, mm. and actually people have other concerns other than the decision. You know, it, the yes. decision is only a part of their life. It's only yes. a sort of brick building a house. It, yes. It's not necessarily yes. um, the end of the world for them. And this information got lost because they were looking at it from a mathematical perspective rather than uh, looking at the human beings behind it and how they might approach it a bit more subjectively. And I think that actually if a decision isn't that important to you, mm. it makes sense that you don't spend all of the time in the world trying okay. to consider it. Another core tenant is that um, preferences are stable over time, and that's obviously not the case. There are fads, and there are mm -hmm. you know things go in and out. The whole the whole concept of a fashion um, sort of knocks that one on its head. Well, it's uh, it's true of even things as basic as food, isn't it? There are mm -hmm. there are fad foods that come in and out of, of fashion and prominence, and you can look at them. You can you can even see graphs of their sales over time. Mm. I bet there was a peak for asparagus at some point because that was the in thing for a while. I don't know why there were fashionable foods that conformity extends all the way to what you eat, but mm. it, it goes to show that even things that you depend on to live, food, can yes. be influenced socially and not purely rationally. Yeah, I once went to a Michelin-starred restaurant where asparagus was on the menu for all three courses. They even made an asparagus mousse or something. It's cheap and easy to make, and it can be made to taste good yes. in quite a low effort I way. I ordered it. It's so that would nice. be, it is nice as well, but yes. it's sort of a red flag of, oh, this restaurant's taking shortcuts for me. <laughs> well, no, it was quite a good restaurant. I'm sure uh, it was if it was michelin star. Yes. Um, Another one, just while I'm finishing off the, um, the, 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 whole, the whole classical stuff, is that higher prices lead to, lead to lower demand. That is a key tenant in that, you'd see, is the whole supply and demand chart. Price goes mm -hmm. up, um, you know, demand for it goes down. Um, 
but I mean, leading back to my point about the dog leagues, is is a lot of the time people actually use price as a as a proxy. So the experiment I've heard here is, you know, you give people wines to taste, mm -hmm. blind testing, and you tell them the price of the wine, and you can basically give them the same wine three times and tell them it's three different prices, and they will consistently say that the expensive one is the one they like the most, even though it's the same wine. I've actually had this explained to me by a sommelier um, when I was um, being trained to do wine testing at a restaurant that I worked at. You do, you do sommelier as well. <laughs> we, we, we must do a brokenomics on that. I'm more than happy to talk about wine, even more happy to try tasting them, if you want. Your skill set knows no bounds, sir. Well, I, did, I did the uh, the cocktail episode, didn't yes, I? Yes, yes. Yes, uh, check that out. Mm -hmm. But yeah. the, there's a very interesting thing of where if you actually have knowledge of the wines, mm -hmm. like the actual wine tasters, the people who do it for a profession, they're much better at ranking which wine goes where than your average person. You know, you can make someone um, who's had, you know, some reasonably okay quality wine, all of a sudden think it's fantastic wine because they're told that it's really expensive or vice versa. Mm. You know, obviously there's still some degree of objectivity if it's sort of, um, you know, Tesco's own brand, um, bottom shelf red. Yeah. Your, your taste buds aren't going to lie to you to that extent that you're going to think it's £150 worth. Mm. But, so, but that provides a good sort of model for um, how humans' judgment can be shaped because, of course, the experts are much better yes. at being able to price something and to know its value than your average consumer. However, through expertise, you can rank things in a, a yeah. sort of reasonable way. But you are right, and that is the exact turn of phrase, that people do use um, price as a proxy for mm. value, when actually value is in their own head. You know, value yes. is subjective. Yes. And so they're actually externalising the value of something because they're assuming that price is actually a valid marker of, of the... I've the value of the product. I've got another example here. So when I was in VC, one of the businesses I invested in, I better not say the name, but it was, a, it was a small chocolate company. And they basically had two customers. It was Harrods and those really, I don't think they exist anymore, but those really cheap corner shops. It, was, it, was, it wasn't Spa, it was something like that. But Mondis? Oh, it, it was, no. Something no, along those lines. Old, so. Older and worse than that, but it was, it, was the cheapest, <laughs> it was the cheapest Charlie corner shop going at the time, right? So Harrods in the really cheap shop, and they produced exactly the same chocolate, and they sold it for like 50p a bag in the corner shops, and for £10 a bag in Harrods. Exactly the same chocolate. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And a lot of the time, actually, the, the way I sort of account for the knowledge of this phenomenon going on in my own purchasing decisions is that I either, you know, if I'm using Amazon, for example, I'll sort by reviews and then at least have some sort of benchmark of what do people who have used these products have to say. And I also read mm. the sort of specifications um, I use. I'm, I'm quite uh, fussy about things. I'll even look at the weight of different products to, to assess their quality because, you know, heavier uh, yeah. can be a benchmark for more expensive. But then I, yes. I'm also someone who's researched decision-making and, and I'm deliberately going out of my way to mm -hmm. overcome the biases that exist, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a bit. Okay. 
And, and, and the other one, just to close off this, is um, that future rewards are consistently discounted so that there's this nice, nice smooth um, valuation metric into the future. Now, this, this one particularly resonated with me because um, obviously there are economists like us who are, you know, well, you're also a behavioural economist, but, but Austrian economists, mm -hmm. we don't get employed by central banks and governments. Keynesian economists get employed by central banks and they seem to they seem to gravitate to this and every economic model i've ever seen produced by a central bank or government is basically a straight line up it takes no account of the business cycle well it, they deliberately engineer them that way because yes. they look good mm. that's that's the thing that if if a graph has a perfectly straight line and particularly if it's a, a nice sort of angle where it's sort of perpendicular yes. to the axes you've it kind of raises red flags in my mind, at least as a sort of statistician, is that there's been some sort of behind the scenes jiggery pokery, that's mm. the technical term, I'm sure, um, to uh, basically they, they change the numbers behind the mm. scenes to create the graph in a way in which looks aesthetically pleasing. It makes them look like they're a real economist, yeah, uh, rather than actually um, sometimes graphs might not necessarily show a noticeable trend and in fact um, if you look at things like experimental psychology where you're measuring very very small effects that may or may not even exist you get all sorts of um, weird and unusual shapes out of your graph and so to see a, a very clear and straight line when you're talking about human behavior because of course there's a large amount of variance in human behavior not all humans behave in the same way and many of the things we're talking about today are general trends that not everyone um yeah might it's like follow. that marshmallow test with children isn't it where you where you say to the kid you know you, you i think you do this experiment aged about two or three or something you can have a marshmallow right now or tomorrow you can have a whole bag of marshmallows and or something like that and mm -hmm. you know you, the, the the ones who who put off the decision are the ones who are going to do well so yeah it's, it's it's not uniform but broadly people tend to overweight right here right now that's true yeah that's yes. one of the insights from uh, behavioural economics is that actually people don't um, rationally approach time preference, if yes. you will, yes. and that they disproportionately favour the immediate over mm. the long term. And I think that this is a, a, a largely uh, sort of hunter-gatherer relic, if you will. Okay. Um, there's, there have been lots of evolutionary explanations of this to say that you know, if you're living hand to mouth, you know, out surviving, then immediate food is worth a lot more to you than food that you could potentially gather and save for later that might spoil, um, that you might lose in transit. Have taken from you. Have taken from you. Yeah. There are lots of things that can happen. And in fact, if you're carrying lots of food around with you in an area yes. where there are predators, well, that's trouble. You know, anyone who goes camping in bear country will know that you don't keep the food near you um, when there are predators nearby because you could yes. end up being their lunch rather than the food that you've got. Yes. And, and so there are very tangible reasons why there are these biases. They're not, mm. um, they're not necessarily what you could regard as, as flaws in, in human beings because they served a purpose and we're here today yes. because of them. But it's just that uh, the selection pressures on human beings have changed and so um, what once allowed us to survive in the wilderness 
Yeah, so so slightly spicy take, but I think that there is a genuine difference between those cultures whose last couple of hundred thousand years or million years of evolution has included winter mm -hmm. and those who haven't. Well, the, the, the difference in GDP in the Northern Hemisphere yes. is very different than that of the Southern Hemisphere, which tends to have less distinct seasons. Yes. Because in, in, in one of those environments, you are selected out if you don't go for the immediate gratification thing, because of all mm -hmm. the reasons you said it can be taken from you, it can spoil it, all that kind of thing. And then in the other one, you are selected out if you don't have that long time preference and you put enough aside to get you through the winter. Well, there's a lot of paleoanthropological evidence to suggest that there's, there's, there's truth to what you're saying in that... Mm. There were lots and lots of, um, even before um, anatomically modern human beings existed some 300,000 years ago, um, our sort of cousins and even, um, you know, some of our ancestors, uh, when they were sort of Homo erectus, they weren't even distinctly Homo sapiens by this point, um, tried to, to colonise um, parts of Europe and Asia mm. and failed because it was a harsh landscape. It wasn't a temperature in which they were adapted to. And it was only in, only much later, really, that you had anatomically modern humans settling these areas. In, in great numbers, at least, there were sort of... You've got things like Homo heidelbergensis found mm. in the Heidelberg forests uh, in, I think that's Germany. Um, mm. Sounds like it. Sounds German, doesn't it? Yes. But th they were there long before um, anatomically modern humans right. existed but in much and, fewer and, numbers, and eventually yeah. died out. And, and when those populations moved, they would have immediately experienced the whole... So again, going back to, you know, the individuals are different within the mm -hmm. group. When the first lot of um, habo hybrid, hybrid licenses, whatever they were... Close enough. Yes. When, when they started moving up, you know, there would have been some of them that favoured putting food aside. There'd be some that favoured immediate consumption, and you would have mm -hmm. that immediate selection pressure. So only the, only the ones who could plan for winter and and a high GDP in a million years' time would have survived. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.